Let's open with prayer. Thank you, Almighty God and Father, that you are infinitely good, that your steadfast love endures forever, and that so does your faithfulness to all generations. O Holy Spirit, bring to us the conviction of sin and dying to self, new life by the work of the cross, and enduring hope by the wonder and reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for all who believe, for your glory. Amen. I'm positive that there are some Andrew Peterson fans in the audience. See if this stanza fits your experience. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleating for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Dear brother or sister sheep, does it seem sometimes that the great shepherd has left you all alone in a dark ravine? Be encouraged. Many here this morning know what it means to feel lost in a fearful wilderness of grief and doubt, bleeding like a wounded sheep, only to be met by the silence of God. So however alone you may feel, it is probable that others here are walking heavy, lonely miles too. The Lord has made us a family and has given us a desire to know him better and to care for one another. He has given us the faithful ministry of the word here at First Street and the privilege to pray together by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a blessing God has given us in prayer. And by studying psalms of lament in the Bible, we can learn to pray honestly and productively through the most shattering trials in this hard life. With that in mind, let's begin with the central reality of what we hope to weave into our lives this morning. And that is this. Even when I feel abandoned and he seems silent or indifferent to my pain and doubt, God is true to who he is. And his loyal, active love cannot fail. From taking notes, let's write that down as exhibit A. Then, if you believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, jot this right next to that statement. Do I pray like I really believe that? Do I pray like I believe exhibit A? Think now on that passage from 1 Chronicles 17 that Chad read and prayed over. Thank you, Chad. David, the second greatest king of God's chosen nation, to whom God made that stratospheric, unilateral, unconditional covenant promise, felt abandoned by God. He felt that way in the middle of a spiritual desert. David spent a fair amount of his time there in his life. I myself have been there. Not a vacation destination. Not much for landscape. A long, cold, dry stretch. Lost in a dim and terrible sense of barren forsakenness. Parched ground. Every green thing choked to death under a cloud. A fog. A cover of confusion, hurt, loneliness, loss, and deep sadness. A sense of defeat at the hands of seen or unseen enemies, crippling fear, faith in tatters. 
Nothing on the horizon to make you think you'll ever get out of there. Anyone here feel that way today? Yesterday? Last week? How do you talk to God about it? Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13. Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 453. 453. Listen to King David pray in heartfelt lament. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. Can you hear desperation in this man's voice? I wonder how many times David prayed this and stopped right at the end of verse 4. Does this resemble your own prayers when life is hard? Look at the heading in your Bible. Something to the effect of for the choir master. Think on this. Is your relationship with God strong enough that you might beseech him in this way and put it to music to be sung by a choir at church as was done in Solomon's temple? I never prayed anything like this before the Lord Jesus brought me to my knees before his cross. An ill-informed view of the real God convinced me such familiar praying was disrespectful and maybe dangerous. I always pictured him as a hair-trigger angry when I prayed, all thunder, lightning, and smoke. Unassuaged guilt reinforced that view in me, and that's something to think on if God feels distant to you this morning. If that describes your spirit this morning, Take heart. David's little prayer can help you go to someone immeasurably kind and understanding with all your guilt and fear. Psalm 13 gives us David, miserable, faith in shambles for unknown reasons, praying to the self-existent creator of the universe in such a way as many saints never dare. Yet the earth didn't open its mouth and swallow him up. And my guess is, David prayed Psalm 13 in some form or another a thousand times before he ever set it to music for us. That should remind us of Jesus' parable of the unjust judge in Luke 18. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? As we'll see, David was an expert sufferer of vast and unenviable experience who knew God is in control of everything even the hard stuff. David was no stranger to fear, death, depression, doubt, the relational separation of sin, the grief of losing loved ones, the startling decline of old age, and the confusing anxiety of social upheaval, such as grips our world these days. And we'll also see that David prays and sings in such a way that his petitions remain within the category of praise. That's what made his prayers of lament so worthy of our imitation. Which brings us to our first point underneath Exhibit A. Point number one. When life is hard and you feel left alone, turn to God in honest prayer and don't give up. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, 
Will you forget me forever? Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 13 the howling song. Quote, from the incessant repetition of the cry, how long? End quote. You will note in your Bible that O Lord is capitalized. David knows the Lord. David knows this is the sacred name of the only God who cannot not be. David knows this name encompasses a list of God's attributes, especially his eternality, self-existence, absolute self-sufficiency, independence, sovereignty, and autonomy. And he knows God ordains all things, knows all things, and can't forget anyone or anything. The Hebrew word for forget here means to be oblivious of, pay no attention. So David feels forgotten and ignored in all his pain. Look again at our text. How long will you, face, will you hide your face from me? See the similarity in the two questions here in verse 1. More than a poetic device, synonymous parallelism is a method of building tension or urgency in Hebrew prose. Feel the urgency and desperation as David cries out to God here. We must remember that God is spirit, so David is using human attributes to understand and describe our God. In the Old Testament, God's face is his presence or his favor. Number 6, 24 through 26, is a frequent benediction at the end of our services here at First Street. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, verse 1 of Psalm 13 is telling us that David's present experience is quite the opposite. From the believer's point of view, when God's smiling face is hidden from us, we feel separation from him. And our sense of blessedness, peace, and safety is painfully diminished, traumatically so, in times of great trial. This is David's condition, but he doesn't ask why. Did you notice that? That we're not given the why is bright providence for us. Psalm 13 is tailored to fit any circumstance, even your own grappling with extended periods of God's apparent silence. It is true that God is never silent to one who prayerfully opens his or her Bible. But the Bible confirms that God does hide his face from his people. And the heart-level sense of loss in trials such as David's. It's painfully real when the word of God feels flat and the spirit's voice is muffled and your prayers are hitting the ceiling. Our text begs us to ask why God has hidden his face from David for so long. The Westminster Confession of Faith can help us here. Chapter 5 of Providence, paragraph 5. Quote, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to rise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. In my own experience, 
Most of the time when I feel God has hidden his face from me, it's because of my sin. In my case, it's usually the sin of undisciplined thought or guilt I'm nursing for being too blunt with people I love. Too often, we stray from God's good provision and allow worldly wisdom, which is no wisdom at all, to draw us away from the truth of the word in thought or deed. If we are to find help from our loving Lord in this, we who suffer must face up to the reality that he loves us too much to leave us in our sins. Though he may hide his face to chastise and humble us, we do well to remember that he was always near and works by the Spirit in his silence, as the confession asserts, to raise us to a more close and constant dependence for our support upon himself. So, if your sin has broken fellowship with God, turn to God in honest prayer of confession and don't give up. 2 Chronicles 30 verse 9 informs us, the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. But again, Psalm 13 doesn't give us the why of David's predicament. It may not be sin. The confession, supported by Scripture, is so helpful here. When it expands God's purposes in leaving his own children for a season to include sundry, sundry other just and holy ends. God's desire that we gain more close and constant dependence upon him must be understood as central to his loving character and to his plan and providence in creation and redemption. Don't ever think that God's apparent silence in your troubles is without good purpose. In your trials, pain, fear, doubt, and depression, remember this. Those dark silences are given to stretch your faith and to heighten your love for God. Stick with him for a lifetime, and you'll find that's true. From time to time, he will silently remind you of your need for him, perhaps because you're quietly drifting away. Think on this. If you are troubled, disoriented, bothered, bereft by a sense of God's absence, might that be the Holy Spirit and work in your yearning for him? For if that were not true, I don't think you'd care. By his very silence in his kindness and his wisdom, the Lord has proven to me my faith time and again. And if you look again at the text, you'll see that David seeks a restored love relationship with the Lord above all. So it isn't that lament prohibits a cry for relief from desperate circumstance. It's that the core of lament seeks for heart relationship with God regardless of circumstance. Knowing God's good intentions are made manifest to us through trials. See how he works his purpose in David's longing to produce the fruit of faithfulness and to bring more glory to himself. And in your own similar experience, trust that just as God has preserved David's little prayer for our benefit, he is molding you into one so intimate with his ways that you can help others negotiate the twists and turns of walking with God through a sin-cursed world. Trials teach us to sing with Psalm 119.7. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. But as we turn back to Psalm 13, verse 2, we see that David is still groping in the dark. It's taking a real toll on him. 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Synonymous parallelism again. The word for soul here can refer to the self, the life, the mind, desire, the inner being of man, and of course, the eternal soul. The word for heart also refers to the inner man, the mind or will. The Hebrew people believed the heart was the seat of the inner life, of feeling and thought. So, when David says he has sorrow in his heart, he speaks of unrelenting grief in the deepest parts of his very being, crowding out all of our thoughts and squelching all joy. So intense it affects him viscerally, physically. And it feels like there's no way out. The Hebrew word for counsel in verse 2 can also mean advice. Have you ever taken your own advice when you feel all alone in your misery? Praying half-heartedly? Unwilling to listen to anyone else? Even your closest friends? Because you're convinced your suffering is worse than anyone else's? And there's nothing anyone can say to make it better? Note that subtle confession in David's prayer. Something you'll find in every truly honest prayer. David has been overthinking inwardly and underthinking Godwardly. That leaves him full of sorrow and affliction all the day. In dark seasons, I have done this sort of anxious wrestling for months without a break. It's exhausting, and it's hard to crawl out from under. I've told friends it's like trying to scrape my heart off the floor with a spatula. Sound familiar to any of you? Listen and learn from David. Go to the Lord in prayer without pretending things are okay when they're not. Go, revering God, but resting in the knowledge of his titanic love for you as illustrated by Jesus on the cross without dishonoring him by imagining him to be an unreasonable hair-trigger father. And I should mention that we are sometimes so turned inward because of sin that it can be hard not to pretend around our friends and family, sometimes especially in church and even in prayer with God who loves us and knows us as no human being ever could. So, ask God to help you search your heart and soul and mind, then turn to Him and bring your appeal honestly, trustingly. God knows all things, so He already knows how you really feel anyway. Only in this understanding can we go to God as David did, pouring out our hearts, lamenting unabashedly, without fear of holy reprisal. Which brings us to point number two. Ask God boldly for help in your deepest need without holding back. You can trust him. Let's take the second phrase of Psalm 13, verse 2, together with verses 3 and 4. Listen to David. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. We do well to connect the prayers of the Old Testament saints to their experiences in the Bible. Otherwise, we leave unmoored from their real lives their woeful cries of anguish, musings, mutterings, triumphs and praises, their darkest nights, and body-racking sobs. You will indeed find faithless grumblings against God and sinful offense in other portions of Scripture, for which righteous judgment was quick and dramatic. But as we'll see, 
David's prayer is anchored in faith. And he doesn't hold back. Listen to verse 2b. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David's enemy is unidentified. And Spurgeon rightly warns us not to attempt to tie Psalm 13 to a specific event in David's life. Yet, his experience is so widely varied and so fraught with danger and desperation that we are impoverished if we don't consider what he went through in his life. Remember David's fugitive days recorded in 1 Samuel on the run from jealous King Saul. Surely any number of events of those desperate times could bring David to his knees, confused, feeling abandoned, helpless, asking the Lord, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Or perhaps Psalm 13 was written as David awaited the death of his first son with Bathsheba. One could argue that the greatest enemy David battled in his life was his own lust. It led him to adultery and murder, crimes for which God severely disciplined him. Can we not imagine David pleading with the Lord that long week as the child of that sinful union lay dying? How long shall my great nemesis, the lust of the flesh, be exalted over me? David might likewise beseech the Lord over, over Amnon, his son. Driven by lust, perhaps more powerful even than that of his father, Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar leading her full brother Absalom to command his servants to put Amnon to death. And after all this, Samuel 13.37 tells us, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. Might he not have prayed as he considered the mess he had made of his own family? How long shall lust my great enemy and now the destroyer of my children be exalted over me? Three years later, Absalom returned to conspire against David's throne. So enthralling were Absalom's charisma and deceit that soon the hearts of the men of Israel were with Absalom, and David and his servants were forced to flee Jerusalem. As the Ark of the Covenant of God was carried back to the city, 2 Samuel 15, 13, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Might not King David have wept in bewildered prayer in these moments? How long shall my enemy, my precious, favored, favorite son, be exalted over me? And you may recall that General Joab later diso disobeyed David's order to spare Absalom's life. 2 Samuel 18, verse 14. Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive stuck in the oak tree. When this news reached David, verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. Oh, church family, and especially those dear brothers and sisters here this morning who are suffering, and depressed, and doubting, and perhaps ashamed to admit it, perhaps sensing death at the door because this sin-cursed world can be so hard, understanding the truth that God really is in control of even our most painful afflictions. Please see this. Yes, David's sin brought him to this place. Perhaps your own sin 
has brought you to a place like it. Or perhaps for you, like the man born blind and finally healed by Jesus in John 9, your suffering is not that you have sinned or your parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in you. And if you have not been brought to such a place, appreciate the grace of God. Give thanks. We rejoice with those who rejoice. But please, search your heart beyond mere sympathy. For we in Christ are all united with this great, struggling, sinful, broken, bedraggled, exhausted, and wonderfully real Old Testament saint by faith. Just as we are joined with the suffering here among us this morning, think on David's life with tender understanding. And know there was more suffering yet to come for him after all we have considered. Perhaps Psalm 13 was written years after all we've seen this morning. Two sons dead. A daughter broken. And it's not over. Is your heart not drawn to cry out to the Lord with David at so much loss? Think of his body racking with sobbing lamentation. Do we not weep with those who weep? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Can anyone blame him? O Christian, Might you find yourself beseeching the Lord like this in any one of David's trials? Perhaps you've never found yourself so downcast as this. But I know some who have looked in the mirror day after day only to see swollen bags beneath dull gray eyes that once sparkled blue or brown or green or gold. And the only light that brings back that glimmer is the return of God's wisdom, guidance, and presence. Whoever or whatever his enemy in Psalm 13 may have been, the threat of death felt like a heavy boot planted squarely in the middle of David's chest. David is close to defeat on all this, and nothing would be more pleasing to his enemies. The enemies of God, too, rejoice when one of his children is shaken and about to fall. David is at the end of his rope, his faith in tatters. So, here we are in the middle of a spiritual desert with David. At the end of your rope, might you demand an answer from God? Perhaps especially if you love him and trust him at the end of your rope? At such a time, remember the word of God. Remember David. Ask God boldly for help in the depths of your need, without holding back. He already knows what you truly need, and you can trust his provision for that best thing. For he is at work within your most difficult trials, for your good and for his glory, with ever stronger bonds of love as his design. The life of King David is living proof of that fact for every Christian. You may ask at this point, What's the difference between grumbling against God and biblical lament? How can our hearts be so free 
to go to the Lord with such confidence. For God is unapologetically righteous. And we see in Numbers 14 and 16 instances of grumbling against God that rightly resulted in severe judgments. Numbers 14 11 helps our understanding. Listen. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? And in spite of all the signs that I have done among them. The lament of the Lord here is reminiscent of Psalm 13, isn't it? How he loves his people. I've heard it said that the difference between lament and grumbling against God is the difference between humility and pride. That is true in so far as it goes. But truly, the difference between grumbling and lament is the difference between trust and suspicion, submission and rebellion, loving and despising. Lest that discourage anyone here in his or her pain and disaffection. It is also the difference between a crumpled shred of belief in God's perfect loving character fluttering weakly in a fog of doubt and outright rebellion that assaults God's character and refuses his love, preferring instead the things of this world. For all its raw emotion and candor, David's song of sorrow seeks after God's love and remains firmly within the category of praise. Which brings us to our final point this morning. Point number three. In your darkest moments, understand as real the steadfast love of God responding in trust and praises of thanksgiving. One of my closest friends' favorite movies is The Princess Bride. You might know him. Remember the pit of despair where years of life were sucked out of the hero through a strange pumping system. Well, our darkness, left unchallenged, works just like that. Look again at Psalm 13. There is a hinge between verses 4 and 5 upon which the door of David's grieving heart swings wide open. Verses 5 and 6 are marble steps leading up from the pit of Christian despair toward an open door and God's warming light. First step, verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. You see, the alarming freedom in David's heart to wail for deliverance from troubles present and future depends on something solid. A first step of praise out of the dank pit of verses 1 through 4. Ben, if we could have 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 15 on the screen, please. Thank you. God made a promise to David. Chad prayed over it. So have I that we might all latch on to it and pray always like we believe it. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it to him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Concentrate now on verse 13. I will not take my steadfast love from him. The best understanding of God's steadfast love that I have gained 
is offered by Charles Spurgeon in his devotional Morning and Evening. He describes the loving kindness of God as tender love, infinite, undeserved, sovereign, rich, healing. Just listen to Spurgeon as updated to modern English by Alistair Begg. God's love is abounding, underlined, abounding, steadfast love. Millions have received it, but far from its being exhausted, it is as fresh, as full, and as free as ever. It is unfailing, underlined, steadfast love. It will never leave you. If mercy is your friend, mercy will be with you in temptation to keep you from yielding, with you in trouble to, re- to prevent you from sinking, with you in living to be the light and light of your countenance, and with you in dying to be the joy of your soul when earthly comfort is ebbing fast. God's promise. I will not take my steadfast love from you. I will not take my steadfast love from David's son. His throne will be established forever, underline, forever. You see, David laments boldly because he knows God's loyal, unwavering, steadfast covenant love for the royal line of the Messiah is cemented eternally. Because the Lord's unilateral commitment to a loving family relationship with David is sealed and notarized according to his perfect character and kept on permanent record before all creation. The Lord authored that covenant, presented it, and staked his very existence on it. Remember, this is Yahweh, the God who cannot not be. Numbers 23, 19. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The Lord our God will fulfill his promises without any action on David's part but to believe and to trust him. And that covenant to establish a throne forever for the son of David is signed for us for us also in the blood of Christ, our eternal king. Shall we walk with David? Another marble step upward. Verse 5. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Eternal kings rule over eternal people. That's the glorious promise, my friends. Can you see it? It's all true. Every word. And in the depths of his anguished heart, David believed it. Even when his faith was shaken by hard circumstance. Do you see the reversal of verse 2 right here? This is the fuel that fires an unquenchable, unquenchable inner joy available to everyone who believes. A joy that even the darkest nights of the soul cannot extinguish. We walk through a sin-cursed world. We suffer the consequences of our own rebellion, having conspired with evil against a holy God. And so, there is pain for us. And rightly so on every horizon, save one, if we believe. And that last horizon holds beyond it a glory beyond imagination in the love of God forever. Forgiven, perfect peace, 
safe always in blissful, ecstatic communion with God and his people in Christ forevermore. And lest anyone in this room doubt this shining reality, suggesting David is merely praying for deliverance from temporal threats, please listen. There is no salvation for saints in the Old Testament that is ever less than a miniature that points triumphantly forward to the great salvation, capital G, capital S, that is accomplished by Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. I call your attention to the Hebrew word for salvation in Psalm 13, verse 5. The root of this word is Yeshua. Translated in the Old Testament as Joshua, and in the Greek, Jesus. Read for yourself the genealogy of the Messiah in the first chapter of Matthew, where you will find that Jesus is the promised son of David, the son of God. And I invite you to listen carefully to Jesus as he prayed the night before he was crucified. Matthew 26, 36 through 39, three verses. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with them, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Do you hear the Son of God turning to God the Father in honest prayer, asking boldly for help in his deepest need without holding back? And do you hear him trusting the steadfast love of God the Father to accomplish his good purposes through Christ's suffering and death on behalf of those he knows will be his people when he ascends to that eternal throne God promised to David. Do you see Jesus trusting and praising? Not as I will, but as you will. Around three o'clock the next day, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, lamenting in anguish as he suffered on the cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. This is Jesus again, fulfilling prophecy. Quoting Psalm 22, also originally written by God through David. But do you hear echoes of Psalm 13? How long will you hide your face from me? That dark day, Jesus took upon himself the wrath of the Father that we deserve and died horribly and voluntarily in blood payment for the sins of everyone who believes. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2.24 He did this for you. If only you will believe and turn from your life of sin. For Christ is risen from the dead. His sacrifice in your place, accepted by God the Father, if only you will trust in Him as your Savior and Lord. How can you turn from Him? Hear His loud cry of lament for you. 
Dear friend, there is no salvation, no deliverance from the eternal consequences of your rebellion against our holy, perfectly good God. No hope for anyone to escape his righteous wrath to come apart from faith in Jesus. Our eternal king who rules even now over his eternal people. So the question to you is the same as it was to David. Do you believe God's promise? That's all he asks of you. Repent and trust that Jesus lived the life that you should have died, lived lived the life you should have lived, and died the death that you should have died. That's Tim Keller. That's why I stumbled. For either you believe that Jesus paid your penalty for sin on the cross, or you will serve your sentence under the eternal wrath of God because you've rejected him. The only action on your part is to believe and to trust. Ask his forgiveness. Ask his forgiveness. He will take you in as a beloved son or daughter of the king. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, his steadfast love is truly, really, that abounding and that unfailing. One more marble step, and we bask in the full sunlight of grace. Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Even as he suffers, David can't help but praise the Lord in thanksgiving for his steadfast love. We can best understand his meaning perhaps here if we hear David sing another of his songs. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Such was David's love for the Lord who had dealt with him so bountifully. He never forgot the great forgiveness of God. I wonder if anyone has ever appreciated the steadfast love of our forgiving God as much as David. He loved the the Lord as the woman at the house of Simon the Pharisee who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, never ceasing to kiss him and anointed him with oil that she couldn't afford. Listen to Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Luke 7.47 Few in history have sinned so awfully and yet loved the Lord so sweetly as King David. Fewer still have suffered so tragically for so long under the just discipline of God. So his heart rejoiced in God's salvation when life was hard. He endured and prayed and sang so faithfully that he wrote 75 of the psalms God has preserved for us in his word. And through it all, David never took his eye off God's great promise of a son, capital S, confirmed in his house, capital H, and in his kingdom, capital H, forevermore on the throne of all creation. Psalm 13, and in so many other psalms, David always prayed like he believed Exhibit A. 
Even when he felt abandoned and God seemed silent or indifferent to his pain and doubt, David knew that God is true to who he is and his loyal, active, steadfast, unfailing, abundant love cannot fail. May each of us here this morning pray always like we believe it too. Make David your prayer partner across the centuries. Lament with him. Turn to God and pray honestly like David and don't give up. Ask God boldly for help in your deepest need, just like David, without holding back. And in your darkest moments, understand as absolutely, incontrovertibly real the steadfast love of God and respond with David with trust in praises of thanksgiving. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Because the promises the Lord made to David, he also made to us who believe in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty Father God, we who believe now stand before you on something more solid than marble, an eternal, tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Help us, O Lord, walk the stairs of truth to the light of grace whenever we approach you in prayer, trusting in the steadfast love you displayed for all creation even the host of heaven and the finished work of Jesus Christ on that torturous cross that we might become eternal children of the King. Amen.